Welcome back to the Starbase Indie Podcast, where we talk to and about people who are inspired by Star Trek or science fiction to work towards hopeful futures in the real world. Which came first, your fascination with language or your fascination with science fiction? Oh, gosh, I really can't say. Um, probably science fiction, because I was probably reading uh science fiction before I was exposed to to anything other than English uh, I would have you know and I'm, I'm trying to get the, the memory churning this question puzzles me um, other than for religious holidays and such and a few prayers I would have formally taken lessons in Hebrew around the time I was maybe 10 or 11 um, and I'm trying to figure out when when um, seventh grade was. Somewhere in there. Like, Somewhere in there. I, I think a year or so after that, I would have started in with Spanish in in uh, in seventh grade in junior what we what we in California called junior high at the time. It's uh, called in Indiana at the time as well. Yes. Okay. Now now it's there's middle school, and I don't know what all these things, and I don't care, so it's all good. Um, <laughs> So, but, but there's something about language. I, I need to go on the record on, uh, about this. I'm terrible at languages. Everybody assumes okay. they come easily to me. No, it's been 30 years. I'm still not even close to fluent in Klingon. And, and um, the people who are fluent in Klingon, they are not happy about this. They, they, they think, well, Lawrence, you started the KMI. You shouldn't be stopping me saying, wait, wait, what was that word? Uh, <laughs> and, and they've given up, you know, expecting me to catch up because it's been 30 years. It hasn't happened yet. Um, but uh, so if you're terrible at languages and they don't come easily to you, what is it about them that keeps you at it? I'm fascinated by them because uh, language is, is the way in which we carve up a reality. Mm-hmm. Different groups use language to say, this thing is important to us. This is how we choose to look at the world. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a quick example. Uh, mass nouns. Uh, sometimes they, they're treated as plural, grammatically plural. Sometimes they're not. We say, um, the grass is on the hill. Singular. Mm-hmm. Also on the hill, the sheep are on the hill. Plural mass noun. How do you know? Well, English has the rule that if they're animate, they're plural. Uh, no one ever teaches you that rule, but you're stuck with it. Uh, other languages use a different characteristic in determining singular or plural for, for mass nouns. And I'm blanking out on, on the other rules in the other language. I know Spanish does it differently, and, and it's, it's perplexing. Um, but and but just, you said both grass... And sheep are mass nouns. Yes. But grass, I don't think of grass as particularly animate. It's not, which is why it's singular. The grass is on the hill. The sheep are on the hill. The fish are in the water. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Um, but not all mass nouns are the same word for singular and plural because the cows are on the hill. Cow is a, is, is a cow. Mm-hmm. Two or more cows. It takes a normal plural. They're not mass. Right. Cow is not a mass noun. Okay, but sheep is. 
Yes. And why? It's the way the language developed. Who? Okay. I don't know. You don't say the sheeps. Right. Exactly. Okay. Now, now, sheep is a, is possibly I should have come up with a better example off the top of my head because sheep is both a mass noun and a singular. You can talk right. about a sheep, uh, but to talk about all the sheep, it's sheep, mm -hmm. and and that's a whole other problem. But we, but and native speakers don't have issues with this. We all have literally thousands of unconscious rules about how the grammar of our language work. And we're utterly unaware of them and can leave happy lives <laughs> exactly. without ever having them pointed out to us. Uh, but anybody trying to study a language other than their, their, uh, their mother tongue, their milk tongue, um, bang their heads against these things. Uh, and that's even, be and that's just spoken language. That's before you get into um, written language and, and spelling in English is just abysmal because English stole from so many other languages. Right. Um, followed, followed other languages down dark alleys and hit them Yes, and head. rifled through their pockets for pronouns. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's, it's so, so there's something about language that has always captivated me um, to understand why they do things differently. And what does that tell us about those people? Particularly, what does it tell us about them that, about them that they don't know about themselves? Because they just incorporated these rules as, as you know, infants, as, as toddlers, and never, had to and never had to work out, never had to deduce the logic of it. Um, this is one of the things I've loved about interacting with the Klingon language community. The, um, that thought process, I think I first became aware of it when there was a panel at Starbase on Klingon science, where mm -hmm. the, I think it was Alan Anderson deducing from the language what Klingons knew about science and back and forth. Uh, and that process is just fascinating to me. It, it's, it's dangerous because, and, and this is a caveat for fandom in general, uh, particularly diehard fans. And, and it's ironic, we're recording this on, on the, the 4th of May. We're not going to go there. <laughs> but um, we're given a little snippet in a film or an episode, and then we generalize a whole vast sociological event from it. Uh, and it's, it's just some offhand sentence somebody put into a script uh, never realizing the possible consequences. But uh, on the other hand, without getting too deep into the, into the weeds of Klingon grammar, uh, Klingon has suffixes that you can put on nouns to either augment or diminuish, diminuish, diminuate, make smaller um, the word. So, uh, and, and they are home and ah, I them backwards. Ah is is the bigger one. The augmentative, uh, chom is the, is the diminutive, and and we have a few examples of these things. Um, so earlier, uh, my background screen background was the the Klingon Great Hall. So vash means you know like hallway, and vash ah is the Great Hall. Okay, and. Some years back, as, as applying my my. Uh, work in psycholinguistics to Klingon, I took a bunch of nouns that had never 
canonically, which is to say in the Klingon dictionary or any of the work Mark Okrand had done, had never had either a or chom added to them. And I passed them out to Klingon, fluent Klingon speakers. And I said, give me the English word this represents. And we had remarkable agreement that here are people who, are, who have incorporated these grammatical rules and they knew exactly what the thing meant, even though they'd never encountered it before. And it wasn't just, you know, great or big or, or small or tiny. It was a completely separate word. I, of course, can't remember any of these in front of me <laughs> at the moment. Um, but uh, I was just amazed by it. Uh, I didn't know what to do with it. You know, it wasn't the sort of thing I could write up and send into a journal uh, for a peer-reviewed article. But um, it was exciting because I was like the in the right place with the right at the right time with the right set of skills mm -hmm. to, to gather that kind of data. And then I set it aside and said, "Okay, let, now we'll do puns." And we went off and and did puns or some or sang or did something because this this would have been at one of the uh, KLI's. Um, annual conferences, uh, of which number 29 is coming up this summer. And it's staggering that we've been doing it this long. So speaking of Klingon puns, I have been delighted to learn how many puns there are in the Klingon language. Do you have a favorite? Um, I have a sentimental favorite, and I don't know if you'd call it a pun. Mark, Mark Okrand is probably the nicest person I've ever met in my life. And he's a bastard uh, for the <laughs> he shoved into this language. You know, little things like um, the Klingon word for neighbor is Jill, because once he had a neighbor named Jill uh, and on and on. And, and when you call him on these things, you know, when he gives us a word and someone points out, oh, you know, here's this thing. And he'll sit there and go, oh, Really? I had no idea. And, and he seems so genuine in that moment. But of course, he's lying through his teeth. Um, I had a dog who uh, came to me as a puppy a long time ago. I'd say probably around 1980. And, and she lived uh, an amazing 18 years. Uh, and she came to me, uh, and this is before I, I knew anything about Klingon. She came to me when I was taking a course in international phonetics. Uh, and so I named her Rang. Uh, that sound is not in English. But as it turns out, it is in Klingon. Um, so years later, um, one of the, you know, Mark gives us new words now on a very regular basis. He gave us the word Rang. Uh, which was a verb meaning uh, to end too soon or too early. And I like to think it was his way of acknowledging the passing of my dog uh, after she'd been with me for 18 years. And, and, and that, that, that's kind of sweet. So I'm going to go with that. I don't know if it's a pun or, or a deliberate manipulation of meaning that he put in the language, or maybe it's, you know, um, we look, it's, it's human nature to, to impose order where there is none. So we will find pattern and meaning, whether there's pattern or meaning to be found. And probably the most well-known example of this is astrology. You know, it has to mean something. <laughs> um, and studies to debunk it have, not, have failed to do so because people want to believe. 
Um, but that's something else entirely and beyond the scope of this interview. Uh, <laughs> Let's go back but, and talk language and linguistics a little bit. So sure. In, in graduate school, your research focused on cognitive psychology and psycholinguistics. Yes. How did that connect to your work as a science fiction writer? Oh my gosh. Um, well, I'm, I'm very much old school, I suppose. Uh, not like those young folk writing today. <laughs> uh, and most of the, of the folks from academia who were writing science fiction were people with, with their, their doctorates in what we might call the hard sciences. Right. Physics and chemistry. And OK, we'll let the biology people in the door, too. Uh, and there was uh, there was me. There was I. Ugh, there was me. We'll, we'll get that in editing. Uh, <laughs> there was me coming in uh, with a degree in in what are generally called these the social sciences or the soft sciences. Um, and, and, and understand that my doctorate is in cognitive psychology. Which and I'm trained as an experimental researcher, not a clinician. So I was coming at some of the topics of science fiction from a very different perspective, uh, arguably a more humanistic perspective, uh, reminiscent of what has been called the new wave in science fiction. Folks like um, Roger Zelazny and Chip Delaney and Ursula Le Guin, and and they were talking about the human condition and looking at how we as, as human beings and as societies uh, explored the topics of the future and technology and, and exploration. Uh, and the emphasis was not on, hey, you know what happens on a, on a, when your, your planet is this much closer to this kind of a star, or you have a little more, I don't know, argon in the atmosphere or plate tectonics or, you know, any of these things, or, or yes, all that mold, all every every bit of mold anywhere on this planet is all connected, you know. And and I mean, those are all fascinating things, but they're not the things that fascinate me. I'm fascinated by our attempts to communicate to one another, to take an idea that exists in one person's mind, and say, okay. I'm going to put this into words in such a way that you will have the same experience I have. And you can't do that. <laughs> it just doesn't work. I mean, that's why we have poets, right? Mm -hmm. Every now and then a poet will manage this. And you'll go, oh my God, even though I'm childless, I now know what you felt when you held your newborn infant in your hands for the first time or, or what it is to, uh, stand on the International Space Station and gaze at the Earth from above. Or, you know, and, and we can rattle off a long list of the, these phenomenal experiences that um, language just tends to fail. And, and, and back when I was teaching psycholinguistics, I would, I would start uh, the, the term with two opposite ideas. One, that language is the most cognitively complex thing we do as human beings in our lives. And we pretty much nailed it by the age of five. So it's all downhill from there. And yet at the same time, it is woefully inadequate for the purpose we've assigned it to. And then we'd spend the semester bouncing back and forth between these, these, these 
two poles. How can it be so powerful? How can it be such a disappointment? Um, and I've already forgotten your question. Oh, 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 oh how does this relate to my science fiction? Um, so I remember the question. Um, it's the filter that I tend to use. So, for example, uh, well, you, you mentioned you just uh, read Slice of Entropy. Uh, one of the things, one of my strengths in my fiction, I believe, is my dialogue and my ability to, particularly in uh, stories and novels set in, in, the, in my Conroy verse, to, to come up with aliens that are both entertaining and, and remarkably non-human. The little bears, I, I can't pronounce the species name, but I love oh, the bears. The Asamurai, um, but you know them. They're, um, sure, they're Chip yeah. and Dale from, from Disney, you know? Exactly, that's uh, what I was gonna say, Chip and Dale. Absolutely, and that was what was in my mind. And, and they are so annoying. And, and, and what made it into the book was the grossly edited down version, you know? Um, and, and so for your listeners, these are two alien physicists who look like cute little bear cubs. And, and we're on a space station where, you know, it's very early into humans getting out and meeting the, the rest of the galaxy, joining the big club. So most of us haven't learned anything, uh, any alien languages or even a, a trade tongue, uh, which is used. And so the aliens visit, visiting the space station have to go out of their way to learn English. And these, these are samurai, or as I sometimes refer to them, bearlings, um, are, are, are learning English. And one of them, of the, one of the pair is, is the designated linguist for the, for the duo. I should mention that they are identical, super identical twins. Uh, and, and so one of them will make use of, of some English idiom. And the other one will compliment him. And they'll back, go back and forth. Oh, why, thank you. Very good. Yes, I'm quite proud of that. And, and on and on and on. And, and the other thing we know about the Asamurai from, from previous books is that they confabulate. Uh, in the tradition of um, improv players, in improv, as I understand it, there are only two rules. Always agree and make it bigger. Yes, and yeah. So, so um, at one point, you know, they're talking about how how hungry they are, and oh, I why well, once I I hadn't eaten anything in a week. This is a week. That's nothing. I hadn't eaten anything in a year. You know, and and it's it's like that um, Monty Python skit. What is it? The 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 uh, four Welshmen. It's like oh, we had it tough. We'd have loved to live in a corridor, you know, and on and on like that. Um, and they're so much fun to write because they are a power unto themselves. So what does it mean to have a society like that that communicates like that? Uh, because one, one of them alone would be fine. They wouldn't have, that, that individual wouldn't have anyone to play off of. Uh, but every time I've written about her samurai, I always have at least two. So, and I, for all I know, um, they never go anywhere alone uh, for that reason, because part of their worldview is always to be constructing things and, and, and expanding things. And to take that, that annoying cartoon um, attitude, and then at the same time say, these guys are serious physicists, 
and they're on a mission and and they come into our story because they they are tracking down someone who is violating the basic laws of thermodynamics you know uh the uh conservation of matter and they want to hold them accountable um that's huge and it just doesn't go with oh indubitably you know that that, right. that they, um and 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 they're they're a delight to write uh for that reason and and the other aliens in the book and there are way too many of them um each have their own approach to things that colors how they carve up reality and some of them are making concerted efforts to work with humans one human in particular the protagonist of the novel who's got her own problems um and that interaction, that, that, that point where all these things come together is, is just fascinating to me. Um, not to give any major spoilers away, but um, when she confronts the villain and takes advantage of his sociological view on the world and, and the role of women, of females in that world, and traps him with it. Um, you know, it seems obvious to me in hindsight, but when I was writing, it was, oh, wow, he's never going to see this coming. Uh, and, 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 but she outsmarts herself and she pays a heavy price for that. And uh, no spoilers, but. Um, and she breaks him, right? She breaks him. She, she destroys yeah. him, utterly destroys somebody who has been, who has had this rock solid self image. Um, for decades and and she's a she's a very young woman and and yeah breaks him is is a very good way to describe it um and that's part of it for me uh in doing so we learn more about her we learn more about the human condition uh you know like like a lot of authors I view aliens as the, the mirror we hold up to ourselves, mm-hmm. you know? And of course, there's a grand tradition of this in Star Trek. Uh, the episode I think is entitled, Let This Be Your Last Battlefield, where we meet the guy who's white on one side of his face and black on the other. And the person he's following is black on one side and white on the other. Mm-hmm. And the Enterprise crew says, you're the same. He says, are you kidding? He's black on the left side. Oh, I mean, how at a time when you could not talk about race in primetime television, how this got past the censors, I don't know, but it's allegory, right? We're not talking about blacks and whites. We're talking about aliens. So it's okay. I attempted the same thing in my novel, Barsk, because we're talking about uplifted uh, mammals, raised mammals. My take on intolerance uh, from both sides of the equation. And I could do that because, you know, I'm talking about animals and, and as a, let me get all the, the words in the right order as a st- overeducated, straight, white, heterosexual male, I am so dripping with privilege that it's a difficult thing for me to engage anyone in conversation about race relations, you know, because I had not walked in their shoes and such, but I could do it in a book where I'm, I'm, wrapping myself in the fiction of 
of two species of elephants and pandas and oh so many other I, it's it's I'm, I'm so many books beyond that it's hard for me to go back and say oh yeah I wrote this all of this is using science fiction as a filter or a lens to look at something in a fresh way um, so while in the example of slice of entropy it's intended to be a lighthearted book it's a fun romp it's not the heavy um, philosophical, conceptual, uh, and dare I say, literary work that uh, Barsk, uh, The Elephant's Graveyard, was intended to be. Uh, and it took much less time to write. But um, my perspective as a research psychologist, you know, shows up in everything I write. You can't turn that off. I tend to liken graduate school to uh, a crucible, you know, assuming you emerge from the fire. Uh, without being consumed by it, uh, you are forever changed, and there's no going back. In the case of the program I was in, everything in the everything in my world became a question. You know, I can't look at something and and not wonder why does it work that way. Uh, whereas before, I was content to say, "Oh, yay, this is in my world. How nice for me." And now it's, "Why is it there? Who put it there?" How long is it going to stay? What's it going to do? Can we break it apart? Will the pieces fit back together? And on and on and on. And it drives my wife nuts. But uh, because she is not a research scientist. Um, but it's, you know, and I've, I've talked to people in other disciplines. It's the same thing. Uh, you want to know how the puzzle comes together. And you want to, and, it, and, and man, I don't have all the pieces. Hmm. Um, cognitive psychology has a history of what we like to call black box psychology. We don't, we don't know what's going on inside the brain, but we can approach it and say, I'm going to give you this thing and then sit back and see what comes out and infer something about whatever cognitive processes must have gone on to get from A to B. And based on that, I can make some hypotheses and Using those hypotheses, I can say, okay, if I'm right, when I give you this other thing, here's what should happen. And if I'm right, great, that's confirming evidence that I got it right. And if I'm wrong, it's okay, time to fine tune that hypothesis. And, and you know, that tends to be how I go through the world. And yeah, I can imagine if you're not me, it's annoying as hell. Um, leads to some great books, though. Well, thank no. you. I like to think so. <laughs> So you came into the Klingon language from a fascination with the languages created by Tolkien. Yes. So first, what got you interested in the Tolkien languages? When I was, I want to say 11, everything happens when you're 11, right? <laughs> a couple of friends and I fell in with a, a group, uh, kind of like a reading group called the Mythopaic Society. They're all over the world. But, but then there was a chapter in the greater Los Angeles area where I lived. Um, and they got, and, and the Mythopaic Society is dedicated primarily, or at least originally, to studying the works of the Inklings. That's Tolkien, Lewis, and Williams. And my parents, oh my God, what I put them through, because it would be, okay, I'm going off to the meeting. And some adult who they didn't know would show up at my home. I would get into their car they would take me, you know, several towns over to somebody else's home. And we discuss, you know, C.S. Lewis's novel, Paralandra, 
you know, all night long. And then I get back sometimes after curfew. And my parents say, where were you? And I said, oh, well, we were discussing Paralandra, which is an alternate uh, version of the, of the Eden myth from the Old Testament. And, and, my, and my parents who'd never gone to college are going, go to your room. <laughs> and there was a subgroup of the Mythopaic Society called the, uh, the Eldoran Language Fellowship, or ELF. And, and mostly they, most of them were, were college-age folks uh, who were studying uh, Tolkien's uh, Eldoran tongues, uh, uh, Quenya, Sindarin, a little bit of the dwarfish tongue of Kudzul and so forth. And I was at a, one of my first conventions, Myth, Mythopaic Society through conventions, uh, silly things. Um, and and I'm, I'm hanging out in the pool with some of these people. And for as long as I could remember, once a week when I was in, in grade school, I got sent to sit in the office of a speech therapist uh, who would play card games with me as a guise for trying to correct my speech. And I could not make the sound hue. I would say human instead of human. Not a big thing, but, you know, this guy had to pay the rent too. So they sent me to do this and I couldn't. And I remember in the pool, somehow the topic came up and these people taught me the basics of articulatory phonetics. And it was like, oh, so my mouth has to do this thing and my vocal cords have to do that thing and my breath goes like this. And I went, oh, human and boom, problem went away. And that may have been my first exposure to look what you can do with the language and a little learning. Um, and, and so these people were, were very big in Elvish. Uh, I never got into Elvish. I like the idea of Elvish, but I never really threw myself into it and gained any fluency. Not that anybody was fluent or still is, but, um, you know, this is just yet another example of how I'm fascinated by language, but I suck at it. Uh, <laughs> but the concepts and, and the, the, the rules the mechanisms of language, those are things I'm good at. Those are things I can understand and approach both as a, as a scientist uh, and, and as a passionate uh, linguophile. Uh, actually using the language, not so much. So I understand Klingon grammar really well as an example. I just can't speak the language fluently. Yeah, that gets to the, the difference between linguistics and maybe and then psycholinguistics versus fluency in being able to speak a language. Can you speak to that difference a little bit? Um, I like to say that I understand language with a capital L and, and a linguist gets to that point. You know, you study a bunch of languages and you say, oh, all languages have negation. Uh, all languages can do this thing. All languages can do this other thing. Some languages cannot do this third thing, and you, you begin to appreciate the patterns that are there, and you can play with the patterns, and that's, that's independent of knowing how the, of, of being able to speak the language. Um, you can teach someone, for example, all the symbols in an alphabet or a syllabary and how to pronounce them to the point where they can read a foreign newspaper out loud and have no idea what they're saying, okay? Um, it's a different approach and it's looking at language on a different level. Um, 
So why Klingon? You, about almost 30 years ago now, you created yeah. the Klingon Language Institute and merging your interests in languages and science fiction. So what was it about Klingon that had you focused there the way you have? Well, it's, it's actually had nothing to do with Klingon itself. It's a very stupid reason to have sent my life off in this direction. I was teaching at a small liberal arts school in a little north of Chicago. And enrollment had been, was down. It had been down for a number of years. And, and every year, um, the, I don't know what his title was, let's call him the enrollment officer, would come to the faculty meeting and say, oh, we're down 10%. And he'd come back the next year and he'd say, we're down 10%. And what he really meant was, we're down 10% from last year when we were down 10%, from la- the year before when we were down 10%. So really we're down, you know, like 30% or you know, it doesn't quite work that way, but more th- far enough that you should be worried now. And, and they decide to worry when I was there and I was the newest hire in the largest department. And they said, well, if we had, and they cut four faculty positions and they said, one of them's come in from your department. Hey, new guy. Um, and, and because of the way academia works, they gave me a year as sort of a, a professorial lame duck uh, to try to find work. And I needed a distraction. I'd actually been planning on, on going to Europe that summer, a place I'd never been. And I said, I can't do that. I have to stay here and look for a job and get my papers in order. But man, I'm freaking out. And I'm going to burn down the president's house <laughs> and maybe the deans for good measure. And that won't help. Uh, I need a distraction. And, and for the life of me, I don't remember who, but somebody gave me a copy of the Klingon dictionary. And I looked at that and I said, this would be a great distraction. We can play with it. I can play with this like we used to play with Elvish. And at this point in time, there was no World Wide Web. Uh, there wasn't much of an internet. Very few people had even email. And the only folks who did were people in the military, people in the government, computer programmers, and, and university faculty, right? But I reached out and I found, hey, there's a group of people studying Klingon. And I, I basically propositioned them. I said, let's study this language a little more formally and, and create a professional society and have a peer-reviewed journal uh, not a not a fan letter or a fan club with a newsletter. Let's do this like serious scholars. And the plan was this is only going to run for a few months, a few quarters until I get a new gig and I can move on. But it will distract me. It will keep me out of trouble. And and then the whole thing exploded. It saved the Dean's house. It saved the Dean's house. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, Isn't that very anti-Klingon? You did not go into battle because of Klingon. Is, is that is that is that ironic? Oh, on the contrary, burning somebody's house down isn't battle. It's just oh, fair destruction. Enough. Fair uh, enough. Instead, I went up against a much bigger foe, uh, against impossible odds. Um, but I'm going to mention somebody whom you know, Jeremy Cowan, mm-hmm. because this was back in the day. Because there was still wasn't much of an internet. There was a magazine called TV Guide, and it was in almost every home, every household in, in the country. Yeah. And they would have a letters section where people would write in. And Jeremy was responding to a letter. Jeremy, who was interested in Klingon, was responding to a letter someone had said about, you know, Klingon is made up. And he said, it's a real language. 
And there's even an organization that studies it, the Klingon Language Institute. And TV Guide printed our address. And so all of this is Jeremy's fault because it exploded. And I started getting letters, multiple letters every week, which most of which basically said, I thought I was the only one interested in this. And soon after uh, I moved to uh, the Philadelphia area and I'm teaching at, at a small liberal arts women's Catholic college run by nuns and it follows me. And on a slow news day, Klingon is a good story. Sure. So all these, all, I started getting contacted by journalists uh, of, from every walk of life, from Time Magazine to the National Enquirer and everything in between, um, and started appearing on TV, uh, Entertainment Tonight, and so forth. Uh, and it was great. And we, you know, the members poured in, uh, and then they they poured out almost as quickly because most of them came in and thought we were going to um, just do fan Klingon. Uh, and, and nothing against fans. I love fans. Fans are great. Yay. We were doing something that required a little more intellectual rigor. And they said, well, this is work. I don't want to work. And they went away. And that's okay. Um, but it just kept growing and growing. And I couldn't let go of it. It followed me. And, and I found myself with the right set of trainings and skills at a time when the internet was taking off and suddenly uh, and, and um, modem speeds were going up and the costs of computers were coming down and suddenly people all over the world could type, could communicate with one another in real time in Klingon. And that had never happened before with any constructed language. So the timing was was remarkable, and it we ran with it, um, and I quickly did, uh, began to acquire a core group of very talented individuals with passion for the language and a lot of other skill sets, and and you know we we got nonprofit status, and the first thing I learned, and I'm learning a lot of things because I've never done anything like this before. <laughs> Uh, the first thing I learned was when someone joined up, it's, hi, welcome to the Klingon Language Institute. What can you do for us? And someone says, well, my day job, I'm a lawyer. And I said, well, isn't that interesting? We could use another lawyer, you know, and on and on. And people joyously uh, share their skills and experience and expertise with us. Um, and a bunch of them also threw money at us, which helped us, you know, cover expenses. Been it was it was all new, and and sometimes it was okay. I'm running this out of my basement, uh, basically, and and the the print bill just came in, and we don't have the money to cover it, but but I can take that out of my personal savings, and and maybe I'll get to pay myself back one day. Uh, and if it becomes too burdensome, I'll have to stop. Um, and here we are 30 years later. It's, it's crazy. Um, and we published a life of its own. Very much so. And it's given me a very interesting life. I've gotten to go places and do things I never, and meet people. I never would have happened otherwise. Um, and it's, it's been a hoot. I mean, I've, I've had sit down private one-on-one -on -one meetings with William Shatner. That's you know, and, and got to hand, hand him a copy, uh, a leather-bound copy of Hamlet restored to the Klingon language 
because he began his career as a Shakespearean actor. That was really cool. Uh, and, and so many people I've gotten to meet in so many places I've gotten to travel to. My last big trip before I got sick was I was a guest of honor at a convention, a nationwide convention in China, along with a bunch of other science fiction authors. But I got to do something very special. They took me to a room where they had a bunch of um, students who were interested in Klingon. And there I am in Beijing teaching Klingon to Chinese school, uh, school kids. It was surreal. How many people get a chance to do something like that? Things like this remind me of, of how truly fortunate I am and, and, and how blessed I am uh, with my life. Uh, regardless of what adversities may come my way, I feel privileged. I truly do. And that's just driven home more and more almost every day. How many languages do you speak? One. Okay, you study a we're, bunch. We're, we're doing it now. Okay. Um, I've probably studied formally uh, maybe seven or eight and informally probably another half dozen and, you know, to a greater or lesser extent. Uh, Duolingo recently added, I think it was recent, Ukrainian. And, and because of, you know, recent political events, it's like, okay, let me, let me see what that looks like. Klingon made it there before Ukrainian did. I like to think so. Um, I don't know for sure, but I think it did. Um, well, but, I mean, it was recent because Klingon was like four years ago, wasn't it? Klingon's been there a while, and, and that is due to the hard work of several KLI members. Mm -hmm. um, and we recently made an agreement with, uh, with Duolingo to take it over for them and maintain it. Uh, it is still very much their part of their package, but it's all, it's, it is now under the formally under the auspices of the KLI. Uh, and we're bringing those modules more in line with our own certification tests so that if you study Klingon, if you study Klingon through Duolingo, you'll, you're going to pass our test. Uh, and that's, yes. you know, makes it a, a better way to go about it. Uh, and, and KLI has always had the position that, you know, we'll help anybody who wants to do Klingon professionally or personally. And in the professional sphere, that means helping them to do it right. Uh, sometimes that goes horribly awry, like uh, Microsoft's Bing Translator. Uh, not our finest moment uh, with some of the decisions that IBM made. Um, their translation engine uh, went off the rails and tends to produce garbage and call it Klingon. Um, sometimes in very funny ways. Funny to Klingon speakers, not to other folks who are looking to say something in Klingon and think it's going to tell them correctly. It's one of my very favorite sort of party tricks that has come from my association with Starbase and the Klingon folks, that if I go out on a social media platform and say, how do you say X in Klingon? I'll get an answer back from you or Jeremy or Alan or sometimes Mark. And I'm like, like I don't do the Google Translate. I've learned. <laughs> like that's not, that's not going to help me. I need to they're the real authorities. <laughs> so the, the, the pervasiveness of Klingon shows up in weird ways. Um, last year, we published the first, we, we released the first published novel entirely in Klingon. Uh, and I did this through Amazon, um, uh, written by Deshdu, as we call him. And Amazon wouldn't accept it. 
you know, it, 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 it bounced and they said, this isn't a language we support. Now, here's a fun thing. Um, you're probably familiar with the, the little barcode on the back of most books, uh, the ISBN. Mm-hmm. In the US, uh, there's a company called Bowker that has a monopoly. They're the only people you can buy ISBNs from. And when you register, when you buy your ISBNs, you, you, know, you keep them in a box. And, and then as you need them, you fill in the details. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, here's a new book. Here's the title. Here's how many pages it is. Here's the format. Here's the language it's in. And the Bowker registration page on the what language is your book in its drop-down menu includes Klingon. <laughs> That's great. And Amazon uses Bowker as their, their source. Mm-hmm. final authority uh so when amazon wrote finally told me the reason we're bouncing your this book back is because we don't have the language my reply was the language is acknowledged by bowker and they went oh okay <laughs> so it's wacky stuff it's wacky stuff it's it's again been part of a wild ride so another part of your wild ride you became a certified hypnotherapist almost a decade ago and you said that your intention was to help writers grapple with problems common to their field. How is that working? Uh, it's not something I do very often, and even less so, you know, in recent years because of my own uh, my my health issues. But oddly enough, I was uh, at a convention this past weekend, and it came up, um, and was doing a little impromptu hypnotherapy. Oddly enough. When I'm working with authors, it usually occurs at the bar at a convention. And, and this past weekend was no exception. And, and it works pretty well. I, when, I'm, when I'm doing hypnosis with authors, uh, first of all, authors are great subjects because they're very creative, they're imaginative, they're inventive. They make worlds. Right. And, and often as not, helping somebody using hypnosis is asking them to imagine something that has not occurred to them before and put that solution in place. And, and these guys are great at imagining things. So it's, it's so easy. Um, and usually it involves helping authors get out of their own way. Uh, because they spend so much time in their own head, they are, I think, more prone than others to invent things to hold themselves back. A simple example of this might be writer's block. Um, they're generally... There are two reasons for writer's block. One is a chemical imbalance. And, and that's, I'm not going to touch that. That's between you and your psychopharmacologist. Check your meds. But the other is your unconscious mind is trying to give you a message and you're not listening. Uh, most of the time when you have writer's block and cannot proceed, you know, you're stuck somewhere in the book. That's because you're doing it wrong. You've gone off, a, you know, and you're on a dead end path. and um, you don't see it yet, but the unconscious level you do. So rather than have you waste your time, we're going to stop you right here. Okay. And then it's a matter of walking it back and having a conversation with the unconscious and, and, and coming up with a new solution. Or I know many authors who never finish a book. They keep writing and rewriting and rewriting and editing. And often as not, it's because of something very simple. The unconscious, and this is true of everything in hypnosis, the, your unconscious mind has one main job, and that's to keep you safe. How, what that means is different for every individual in different circumstances. And the things that it learned to do to keep you safe 
you know, in your youth may not apply anymore, but no one checked in and told the unconscious the situation is different. So you're not, maybe you're not finishing that book because if you do, you'll have to send it off, send it off, try to get it published or let's, let's do a short story, easy to work with. Uh, and some editor may send it back and say, you suck. This is the worst thing I've ever read. Well, I can't handle that kind of rejection. Oh my God, it will completely destroy me. So my unconscious says, well, we don't want that to happen. So let's make sure you never send it out. So I would go in as a hypnotherapist dealing with this writer, have a conversation with uh, their unconscious and say, okay, that strategy worked great to protect us. 10 years ago, when we were just starting out, didn't know what we were doing. And most of the stuff we wrote was indeed crap. But we've been practicing and writing. We've written dozens and dozens of stories. We've gone to workshops and taken classes. And now we're actually pretty good. So it'll be okay. And we've hardened you know, our, our, ourselves a little bit. So it'll be okay. You didn't know all these things that are, were in place now. But it's okay. We can we can send things out. It won't hurt us. And the unconscious mind will. Oh wow! I wish you told me before. Sure, go ahead and send it out. And suddenly that wall just evaporates, and it's phenomenal. And these are you know these are very easy things to do for the most part. But it's you know it's it's like giving advice to a friend. It's not as easy to do it for yourself. There's nothing I'm doing that that's truly earth shattering. I'm just using some tools most people don't have. Yeah, you've said that what most people know about hypnosis is utterly wrong. And I think you mostly just answered, you know, what, how does it work? But what, what do you wish people understood better about hypnosis? Oh, there's the common belief that, um, that some people can't be hypnotized. Absolute nonsense. Everyone can be hypnotized because everyone gets hypnotized in the course of their normal lives. If you've ever been driving home after work, and your mind wanders and suddenly you're pulling into the driveway at home and you think, where did the 10 minutes go? Yeah, you were in trance. It's perfectly safe because if somebody suddenly pulled in front of your car and you had to slam on the big, boom, you're out of trance. But otherwise, anytime you are disconnected, you are mentally disconnected or your awareness rather is disconnected from your immediate environment, that's trance. We all go into trance. A hypnotist takes advantage of this fact and does it very deliberately and selectively. So that's one thing. The bit about, oh, you can't make someone do something they wouldn't do. And that's kind of nonsense too. The more important rule to remember is your unconscious mind won't do something to harm you. Your unconscious mind has to keep you safe. So all I have to do is come up with a scenario where you need to keep yourself safe. So you'll do this thing you would never do. That and 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 we can write movie plots about that, you know, and on and on like that. And, 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 and the notion of, you know, Svengali, you know, you were getting sleepy and boom, you're gone. Um, hypnosis is, is a very simple set of, of skills at, at, at its most basic level that anybody can learn very quickly uh, to alter someone's life, uh, to improve the quality of their own life or the, the lives of the people of, of, of their clients. It is not mind control. It does not rob somebody of their will. You don't take over their every thought. What you do is empower them to, to make better choices, to be happier and more fulfilled. 
but that doesn't make for a good movie plot, you know? So, you know, we, we have the myths. So you were with us for Star Wars Indie in 2018. So, yes, it was glorious. Thank yes, you. What, what did you love about Star Wars Indie? Oh my gosh, where to start? Um, it's a small convention that felt very full. Okay, there was lots going on, people with lots of varied interests united by a common interest in Star Trek. And that may have manifested in different ways for different people, but everybody was there and having, having a great time and enjoying everyone. And I got to meet some very cool people, uh, again, that because of this life uh, that I wouldn't get to meet otherwise. No, I, I had, a, I had a, an awesome time and, and got, to, got to attend another of the little hotels in that corner of Indiana, which, which you know, kind of fascinate me. Because we, we've had the KLI's annual conference in that area a couple of times. Right um, around the corner. Yeah, I, I yeah. really want you all to come back to Indiana so I can come to the cabaret again. <laughs> We, we outgrew the hotel size. I hear. I think so. Um, and and then there's this pandemic going there's on. There's that. Uh, yeah. 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 But next year is the big 30th anniversary conference, and I believe we're going to be in the Greater Chicago area for that. Yeah, uh, and I may have to drive up because that cabaret is just <laughs> one of my favorite. <laughs> well, well, you'd be welcome, and you know, feel free to bring 20 or 30 of your closest. Uh, or, yeah, yeah. To learn some Klingon. So tell us what you're working on now. Oh my gosh, too many things, too many <laughs> things. I recently signed contracts with a new publisher. So I have a book a month coming out with them for, for six months in a row. The, the first wow. book, just, yeah, I'm, That's yeah. a lot. It is. The first book came out late in April. Uh, book two in that series comes out late in May, book three, late in June. And then we're switching over. They also want to really republish an earlier uh, trilogy that I had written by uh, co-author Brian Thorne, and they'll be pumping those out, you know, one a month. Uh, so that happens through September. I have been running a Kickstarter to fund uh, my sixth short story collection. That Kickstarter has funded, well, I'm sure be over and done by the time this airs. So we funded, and now we're trying to get a little more, a little more scratch to cover some uh, stretch goals because I like stretch goals. Sure. It, it gives it gives everybody more stuff for free. And I, mm -hmm. I kind of like that. Uh, we've hit one stretch goal. We've unlocked one. I think we're going to unlock the second. I believe there are six days left in the campaign today. That book will come out late June. I'm trying to finish the second Pizza in Space book, Slice of Chaos. I have another novella in my Barsk series that I, I have been poking at uh, a little at a time. My co-author Brian and I are outlining and gathering thoughts for what will be books four through six of the Demon Codex series, assuming the publisher wants to do more of them. And my brain keeps distracting me saying, hey, here's a new thing we should write. <laughs> and I say, no, 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 I, I need to finish writing Slice of Chaos. Yeah, Lawrence, but what about this? <laughs> and just take a few moments to to jot down a few notes and you know next thing i know i've you know i've got i've got a, a book proposal i i tend to work on multiple projects simultaneously usually there are different stages of development which is good because if i'm you know burnt out on one thing i can switch gears and now that the weather's improving and my stamina has been on the rise i'm i'm getting back into walking in the park and i can dictate fiction as i go in fact 
the novel you just finished, the entire initial draft was composed while I, I did laps in this little park over, I think the course of like 14 days, 18 days. It wasn't done at that point. I had to go in and clean it up from beginning to end. It happened on a walk. And I'm looking forward to doing more of that. Endless projects. And, and as I'm learning with this new publishing company, there are multiple exchanges of manuscripts. I will turn something in and I'll go, oh, okay. Edit, edit, edit. Here, Lawrence, look at my notes. Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> And I had thought the, the trilogy that they're reprinting, they'll just take the original version and run with it. And they said, you know, we're, we want to go through it again because just because it's been published once doesn't mean we can't change it and make it better. And I said, well, I'm all for making it better. And, and we started working on those. So in the past week, I've edited two complete manuscripts, which was crazy. And, and there'll be, and I'm expecting to get you know, several rounds of two more this month because I'm leaving the country uh, at the end of the month and, and going to a writer's conference in Spain. And I'm not going to be able to work on things while I'm there. So I'm telling the editor, get it to me this month if you want to be able to publish it according to the schedule we've laid out. And they said, oh, you betcha, well, Lawrence, just wait. So it's very busy, but I'm trying to pace myself a little bit. Where can people find you most easily on the web? Uh, most easily on the web is to find me on Facebook. Um, I have a website, lawrencemshone.com. I have a newsletter, comes out once a month. It's here's what's going on in my life. Here's what's going on with my medical travails. Here's the books that I'm working on. Here are sales. Uh, often there are freebies because I like giving people things for free. And here's what I'm reading. And here's what's happening in the Klingo. You know, just it's a newsletter. You'd think I'd remember the link for that to send people to, but I, I, I'm blanking out. The other place people find me is on my Patreon uh, page, which, which exists to help defray some of my ridiculous medical expenses. And I have a Twitter account, but I'm, I'm not there much. I'm, I'm mostly there to say, hey, look, I have a new book out. Right, right, yeah. Buy it for all your friends. And I do some uh, mentoring of uh, other younger writers through that vehicle. I have not made the jump to uh, Instagram or Twitch or the million other yes a million so other things. Events. I'm uh, a lot of the Klingon work is now happening on a Discord server that the KLI maintains, and and it's like newfangled technology. You know? <laughs> yeah. Get off my lawn. Yeah, uh, I'm getting there myself. <laughs> yeah, um, and and that's okay as long as there are younger people who are more flexible than I am who can pick up uh, the Slack there. Slack, there's another one. My publisher does everything on Slack. So, okay, email. I like email, but you want Slack? Fine. Great. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. And Oh, it's my pleasure. And I love what you're doing with Starbase Indie. And, and I hope you get to keep doing it for a long time to come and, and that I will find my way back to Indiana sometime in the not too distant future as the world stops burning a little bit and opens up more. Indeed. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Starbase Indie Podcast. To find more information about our live event this November, check us out at starbaseindie.org or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. See you on the Starbase.